Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So the easiest way is that, so an integral emotion is an emotion that's relevant to the decision at hand. So you're looking at option A or B. The idea of taking option B fills you with regret. That's an important signal. And those emotions, the ones that are relevant to the decision, usually last for days. So if you're thinking about a decision and you keep feeling regret when you think about it, that's something you should listen to. Uh, an incidental emotion, which is irrelevant to the decision at hand, is usually has a much shorter time frame. So an example of that is, I'm driving to work, I get stuck in traffic for two hours, and then I get a parking ticket. When I get to the office, I'm going to be frustrated and mad and I'm going to make worse decisions if I don't understand that that anger or that frustration is affecting the way that I see the world. Um, and that will pass. Like in the afternoon, I'll probably have eaten lunch, calm down. And then when I go back to make a decision, I probably won't be so frustrated. So that's definitely an incidental or irrelevant emotion. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Liz, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Very excited. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of our mutual literary agent. And I know that you have a new book out called No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work and How They Help Us Succeed, which we will get into. But before we do that- Can I jump in? We changed the subtitle. Um, Oh, okay. The George is having a galley. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So if you, I can, it's just the secret power of embracing emotion at work. Okay. Fantastic. So- Let's get into it. But before we do that, I want to start by asking what I think is a really relevant question, given the subject of this book. What social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Oh, interesting. I have... So I went, I think, for context, I went to a very creative, hands-on Montessori school through eighth grade, where there were about 15 people in my class that I was with throughout the entire school process until eighth grade. And then I went to a really large public school where looking back, I'm sure that everyone was really nice, (laughs) but I kind of became depressed because I missed the friends that I had grown up with. None of them were at this new school. And it was the first time that I was learning by sitting in a desk and looking at a textbook and having someone lecture at me. Um, And that was, you know, in eighth grade, I loved math and I just considered myself really good at math. And then when I had to sit still for eight hours a day, I started not doing as well in classes and I started to not enjoy math as much. So I think the honest answer is that I wasn't that social in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. And that influenced me a lot. I think it's made me much more empathetic towards people who seem unengaged or seem quiet or not part of the group. Um, I've never seen that as a sign of someone being awkward uh, or even, you know, not understanding the material. I think there's, it's, it's just allowed me to understand that there's usually a bigger picture behind every situation and that people Mm -hmm. are always going through something that you might not know about. Um, And then in terms of my decisions later in life, it definitely affected the kinds of work environments that I chose for myself. Um, I, I think I've always gravitated, especially once I decided to kind of take more control of my career and be very thoughtful about the projects that I worked on. Um, just something that allows me to create and to, that at the end there's a product that also helps people. Um, yeah. And then, and then, and then just when I look back at everything I've done, the unifying theme I would say is to take something that can be presented as very stodgy or difficult. And I think like math and economics really fall into that category and then find a new spin on it to present it in a way that actually makes it seem fun and engaging. And that brings people to life. Uh, Cause I just the, the contrast between how I felt about a subject based on two different teaching styles was so stark. Mm-hmm. Do you have kids or are you a parent? I am not. No, no kids. Okay. All right. Uh, the reason I asked is, you know, you mentioned the Montessori experience mm-hmm. and 
I wonder as somebody who had that experience and then was put into a situation where you're lectured at, why do you think that the experience you had in Montessori is not something that is continued? Uh, how would you update our current education system to make it more engaging uh, so that people like you don't feel the way that you did? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's always difficult when you're just faced with budget constraints and then just classroom sizes, which I think are expanding at alarming rates in many places. Uh, but generally, I mean, the first thing I can think of is just an overhaul of the textbook. I think the traditional economics and math textbooks are just a design abominations. <laughs> you just open it and it's just immediately, there's so much dense information. Um, mm -hmm. And just, Again, even something as simple as in every class or lecture, tying what you're learning to the real world. So I think what happens often is that people just throw formulas at you without ever saying, hey, the Pythagorean theorem can allow you to figure out the height of a ladder. Um, it, you know, or if you understand angles and how to build 3D figures, you can actually construct like some cool figures out of construction paper. Um, so for me, when I really found myself unengaged, it was when it just felt like rote memorization without a bigger purpose. Um, mm -hmm. And then I would also say just anytime you can have some kind of different form of learning besides lecturing, and that might be turn to the person next to you and try and solve this together as opposed to the teacher solving it on the board. Uh, and this is, again purely based on my experience. I'm not trying to posit myself as an expert on <laughs> the educational system. Um, right. But those are just, that's what I always responded to in learning yeah. situations. What, uh, what did you do post-college? What did you study in college? And, and how did this sort of monster experience and this uh, perspective you have shape some of the choices you made about what you chose to study after you left high school? Yeah. So I specifically chose a small liberal arts college because I wanted to get back in that kind of hands-on uh, smaller environment. And then I studied mathematical economics. And so for context there, my parents uh, immigrated to the U.S. And I think for both of them, education was a path to a much more financially stable life. Um, and I think also out of that, probably a common experience among among children of immigrants is just become like a doctor or a banker or a lawyer, you know, <laughs> yeah. go to a building, get, get just something stable and then get a house and, and you're set. And so to me, that path was, I'm going to do, you know, economics makes sense. Um, and then after I graduated, I got a job in economic consulting, which is law firms will hire economic consulting firms to calculate how much money companies owe each other or to create some kind of statistical defense. Uh, so let's say like an insurance company they think should not have to pay out a big insurance claim. Why? And then we'll provide the numbers behind that. And that job was, uh, it, it was, it was, it seemed interesting on this, uh, at first and the, the, a lot of my friends were going into it and it was very much in line with, you know, it was a building. I wore like a banana Republic suit every day and I just felt successful. Um, and after about two years, I burnt out and had to leave. I was just getting headaches. I was really anxious. And so I think the decision to take that job was largely born out of this idea of what a career path should look like. And then the decision to leave was probably this the smaller child version of me that was like, I just want to make things and I want to be directly interacting with the people for whom I'm making something. And I just want like life to feel a little more magical. Um, yeah. Hmm. Two things. One, why do you think it takes uh, an existential crisis of sorts for us to bring about change so often in our lives? Cause I, I'm, writing this piece right now about this. And, and I, I, I said, I had one part of the idea down, which was that comfort kills far more dreams than crisis ever does. Uh, and that sense that you had of wanting to make things, this sort of childlike curiosity, why does that get stifled as we get older? It's 
just all the shoulds of of what we are. I think there are so many cultural examples and representations of success. And I, I think this is actually changing a little bit, but definitely when I was growing up, um, I just, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it came from, but I just remember thinking when I'm 25 or 30, I want to be looking out over a city, wearing a suit and sitting at a computer, talking about numbers and doing PowerPoints and like, I'll have made it. And that will be immensely gratifying to me. And I never, ever questioned that until I was in a situation where that could have been an option for me, you know, years down the road. Um, and yeah, so I think that the crisis is, is, is the point at which what we really want or what we really desire out of life comes through in some way. Um, and so I think that can mean that sometimes we self-sabotage. It can mean it, those feelings manifest themselves physically. Um, but yeah, be, being forced into a situation where you confront the fact that one, there are maybe limitations to what you can do to what's sustainable for you as a human and as an employee. And then probably if you're, if you're talking about even a more intense crisis, the realization that, you know, whatever your beliefs about the afterlife are, that this version of life will end one day. And so I think that can be very anxiety inducing, but then also a driving force for just appreciating life and appreciating the life that you have and that you want to car carve out of, out for yourself. Um, I think one of the most beautiful experiences is to go after something that you want that originates from you. Hmm. It's funny you talk about the afterlife. I always jokingly say that I think Indians, uh, It'll live on what Randy Komisar calls a deferred life plan because oh. they believe in reincarnation. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I think I'm going to come back reincarnated as a cockroach with all the skeletons oh, no. in the closet. So I think I'm going to bet it all on this life just in case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah my, da my dad was also, he's now retired, but he was a pathologist. So mm. I've definitely, from an early age, you know, he's very scientific. I think I've felt very strongly that, you know, there's a good chance that this is it. And then no matter what happens next, you got to make mm. the most of this because this comes to an end. Yeah. Well, I think this all makes really kind of a perfect transition to talking about the content in the book, but how do you get from the job that you had to writing a book about emotions at work? What has been the trajectory to lead here? Yeah. So when I left, that was, especially coming from a quantitative background. And then uh, I would say my parents are on the more stoic side, and I'm an only child, so I was not raised to be emotionally expressive. Um, so burning out of a job was the first time in my life that I was like, "What is ha like? What's going on with these emotions? What are they? Why am I feeling like this? Why can't I control them?" Um, it was just very confusing, and it, it really forced me to confront that what I'm feeling or what I want holds weight mm -hmm. and has power over me. Um, so that process, I think also, it just made me very afraid to apply for a new job or to try something else because I did not want that experience to happen again. And so I was just looking at this void of once you kind of step off of the traditional career path, there's no map. It's terrifying. <laughs> there's absolutely no guidance often too. Um, and so that's when I really became interested in reading about psychology or reading about, you know, what could I, looking back, are there things that I could have done to make myself happier, to maybe make myself a little less anxious in the workplace? Um, what were the, the specific reasons that I didn't enjoy that job as much as I thought I would? And so a lot of that turned into then researching organizational design. Um, and at the same time, I, so I have this you know, my parents gave me a very strong work ethic. So when I was working as a consultant to escape the office, I would go to a Starbucks a few blocks away twice a day just to get out and do something. And so when I left that job, I wanted some source of income and just like something to do while I was figuring out kind of what the next big step in my life would be. So I went back to the Starbucks where I knew the baristas and I said, can I work here? I don't have a job anymore. How do I apply to be a barista? 
And so I worked at Starbucks for about six months. And that was this completely unexpected crash course in the power of design and how creating an emotional attachment to an environment or to a process or a ritual just is so not only sort of you know emotionally powerful but lucrative uh and so i think that awakened in me this idea that art doesn't have to make you poor um which i think unfortunately in a lot of fields that's that's kind of a belief that that people might hold um mm-hmm. so yeah was, i think it was those two things like seeing the power of, of, of spatial design and designing an, an emotional experience. And then also having to confront the emotions that I had within myself uh, and, and navigate that really made me interested in emotion in general. And then specifically in, in a workplace and, and in an environment. Mm-hmm. So let's get into the book. I think that where I want to start is with something that you guys open the book with. And you said that suppression and avoidance might seem to be the easiest answers, but this attitude is counterproductive. Humans are emotional creatures, regardless of our circumstances. By ignoring our feelings at work, we overlook important data and risk making preventable mistakes. Now, you said you grew up uh, relatively stoic as somebody who was not taught to be emotionally expressive. And I think for the most part, most of us, uh, particularly when it comes to work, tend to suppress. Why is that? There is probably still some remnants of this traditional workplace where you come in, you have, I think, you know, far back, you had one task, you did the task over and over, and then you went home. Um, and there were also pretty clear boundaries between work and home. Work was a place you went to, and then home was a place you came home to. And we didn't have cell phones. And so I think just having two separate spaces meant that it was much easier for two separate emotional norms to form around how you act in those spaces. Um, So yeah, I mean, again, coming from this sort of more traditional workplace where maybe you weren't working with other people as much, it wasn't creative, collaborative work. It makes sense from the employer standpoint that like, we don't want a ton of feelings in this, in this environment. Um, I think in, in, in some, especially white collar jobs in the past tended to be male dominated. And so there probably was also some elements of, you know, what we think of masculinity is usually being rational. And that unfortunately is tied in with being unemotional. So I think in the, there's just a lot in the past that has created this idea that to be professional means to repress your feelings and to be just like solely a business machine. Um, and now that's no longer as useful because we, we just have to work with other people. I think almost anyone, no matter what your job is, is you're working with other people. And so many times when we talk to people about the book, the, the issues, it's not, you know, like I want to get promoted or I'm not negotiating my salary. Those are definitely issues that come up. But the more common experience is, you know, Kelly's on my team and I just can't get through to Kelly or like John keeps CCing people and I don't want him to CC all these people. I don't even know how to talk to him about this. So we're just not fluent in the language of emotions at the workplace because it is a different context. Um, I think just the, yeah. So I would say the fact that we have to work so closely with others, both in an environment with others, and then also we're on teams, we're on ad hoc teams, we're having meetings all the time. Um, it just necessitates being able to address the inevitable kind of feelings that will come out of interacting with others so frequently. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of how we become fluent in the emotion of, of uh, in the language of emotions at work. Uh, I know that you break this down into seven rules of emotions at work. Uh, can you give us the seven rules and, and talk about them and, and how they apply? Yeah. So the first that we came up with was to be less passionate about your job, uh, which sounds uh, counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. Um, so the idea there is we also work has become a much deeper part of our identity. I think at no point in history were we as defined by what we do. And that's also because we, we spend so much time at work. We want to believe in what we work on. Um, we want it to be a meaningful experience. There are surveys now that show that sort of feeling like you're connected to your job is, is a much higher need than often even like being part of your uh, community at home. Um, so that the tendency, the, the danger there is that we'll care too much about work. And that becomes unhealthy when 
you interpret just critical feedback becomes an attack on your entire self-worth. So by caring less about work, we just mean like go home at the end of the day and take time to create a ritual so your brain knows you're not at work. Like listen to a podcast, go to the gym, um, just do something so that you separate yourself a bit from your work identity so it doesn't become all consuming. Um, it also, it okay. just, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You're more, I, I wanted to ask a question. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, so the other thing that you, you said is, is that we put constant pressure our, on ourselves to always be our best when we feel exhausted and then feel exhausted when we fail to live up to this unrealistic stand, standard. Now, you mentioned separating work from your identity. I think that I'm in a, a situation where a good amount of my work is unfortunately very coupled with my identity as much as I hate to admit mm -hmm. that. I mean, there was a point, I think, earlier this year, you and I were talking about yeah, book sales and expectations. I started to realize that my self-worth and book sales and, and literally all the metrics that drive my business were basically how I was measuring my mm -hmm. self-worth. How do you uncouple that? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is just to make sure you're not ignoring other parts of your life. So maintaining your non-work relationships, taking the time to go on a trip, to go on a hike, to go to the gym and not you know, quantify all of those experiences. Like it doesn't always have to be metric centered. Um, I think now with Fitbits and everything, we just, it's we too often bring a work mentality into our free time. And so I think if you have like a, a great group of friends that care about you personally, it becomes less important how many books you sell. Um, mm -hmm. if you just have something else, an outlet that brings you a lot of meaning and brings you peace, again, it becomes less important how many books you sell. I probably in the modern world, especially when what you do is so wrapped up in your identity, I don't think you can ever completely stop caring. And I think that's also not healthy and it's not productive or useful for trying to accomplish anything. Um, but just not, not ignoring the other parts of your life outside of work. I think investing in those can only bring you good things. There's this idea I talked about uh, with a friend recently where I think so many people operate under the, the idea that once you get the promotion, you'll be happy. Once you sell X number of books, you'll be happy. And what I've seen in my own experience and in others is that it's more often when you're happy, you operate from a base that makes it easier for you to do all the things you need to do to sell more books. So you need to start with with like well-being and start with taking care of yourself and then suddenly the promotion seems more possible hmm. all right so what are rules two through seven i know the second one has to do with motivation yep the second one is just inspiring yourself so i think a lot of people who are in jobs and they are extremely bored or don't like their job anymore um oftentimes it's because we've stopped seeing work as a place of learning or as a place where we can make connections or we're not trying to really understand the greater context in which we're working. So a few things to try there are one, just try and learn something new. A great way to do that is to grab coffee with a coworker that you haven't talked to that much before. You'll both maybe make a friend. You might learn something new about the company. You could do like a skill swap where you teach them a little bit about what you do on a daily basis. They teach you about what they do. Um, and then also always remember so if you're sitting there doing a lot of data entry, definitely can be a grind, but trying to think about, well, I'm doing this so that, you know, we can send out food to homeless people. Um, and that's really meaningful. And so trying to figure out like, what is the broader meaning in, in the one thing you're doing? And then the last thing I'll say that can be useful is this like, concept of job crafting, which is within any role, you can, to some extent, take on new projects or like shift your work slightly towards things that interest you more. So maybe volunteering to help out with a design project or just again, getting coffee with coworkers can help you identify things that are happening within your organization that you might enjoy being a part of and then trying to figure out a way to get yourself on that team or contribute in some small way. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk uh, about the rules around decision-making and emotion. Yeah, so there we say that emotion is part of the equation. And I think decision-making is really where this idea that emotion does not belong in the workplace because emotion equals irrationality comes into play. So there's a lot written Uh about don't listen to your gut, um, make completely unemotional decisions. And what research has actually found is that the people who make the best, most tactical decisions are the ones who acknowledge everything they're feeling at the moment of making a decision and then are able to filter out these emotions are noise and these emotions might be useful guideposts. So saying that some emotions are useful doesn't mean you need to act on those emotions, but it just means that you're listening to them and it allows you to take control of your emotions as opposed to pretending that you're not feeling anything. And that's when your feelings will stick their tentacles into your decision-making and you won't have any control over how they're affecting it. Um, right. Yeah. So you discern between integral and incidental emotions. How do people figure out which or, which one is which? Yeah, uh, great question. So the easiest way is that so an integral emotion is an emotion that's relevant to the decision at hand. So you're looking at option A or B. The idea of taking option B fills you with regret. That's an important signal. And those emotions, the ones that are relevant to the decision, usually last for days. So if you're thinking about a decision and you keep feeling regret when you think about it, that's something you should listen to. Uh, An incidental emotion, which is irrelevant to the decision at hand, is usually has a much shorter time frame. So an example of that is, I'm driving to work, I get stuck in traffic for two hours, and then I get a parking ticket. When I get to the office, I'm going to be frustrated and mad and I'm going to make worse decisions if I don't understand that that anger or that frustration is affecting the way that I see the world. Um, and that will pass. Like in the afternoon, I'll probably have eaten lunch, calm down. And then when I go back to make a decision, I probably won't be so frustrated. So that's definitely an incidental or irrelevant emotion. Mm-hmm. All right. So where does that take us to next? I think that takes us uh, from there into psychological safety, right? Yeah. So psychological safety is the idea psychological safety occurs when people on a team feel safe taking risks asking questions 
or throwing out ideas. And they feel they can do that freely without the fear of any reprisal or judgment. And this is actually, Google did a big study a few years ago where they were trying to figure out what makes the most effective team. And they thought it was going to be a who. So they thought it might be, okay, if you have like the smartest or the most senior or like what kind of mix of roles do we need? And instead what they found was that it's a what, it's a what, not a who. And the what is just the existence of psychological safety. And this is really important when you talk about diverse teams too. So it doesn't matter if you have an extremely diverse team, if you have not created a space in which people feel comfortable sharing their ideas, it doesn't matter that you brought the right people in the room. You're not getting out of them all like the, the unique contributions that they could bring. Hmm. Why do you think that there are uh, working situations where there isn't psychological safety? Yeah, so I think definitely this comes to this idea of emotional cultures. So each organization has its own emotional culture. And unfortunately, some organizations really cultivate aggressive, competitive cultures. Um, And I think in those places, it does become less about we want to collaborate and come up with a great idea and more. I need to show that my idea is the best. And that's when the existence of psychological safety uh, comes under fire. Um, it's, it's usually not a safe space. Um, but so I think that's a real work environment that many people have to exist in. And so we give in the book a few practical suggestions. One, how to kind of protect yourself from a negative emotional environment. And then two, just really small things that you can do on your team to try and take steps towards creating psychological safety. So one step you can take is just to make sure that you're phrasing questions in a way that invites an answer. So if if I say to you, of course, you know, the work of Richard Thaler, that doesn't really leave room for you to say, no, I've never heard of him uh, without just coming across as uninformed. But if I instead say, do you know Richard Thaler and say it kind of in an open tone, then that invites you in to say like, no, can you tell me more about that? So just really small things that you can do um, to model. A, a culture of psychological safety. Yeah. So you also talk about conflict, right? How do you navigate uh, conflict and difficult situations while maintaining psychological safety in those situations? Yeah. So the best is there's two types of conflict. There's task conflict, and that centers around the project you're working on. And then there's relationship conflict. And that's when you're actually butting heads with a specific person. That's personality-driven conflict. And so task conflict is good because you want a clash of creative ideas to get to the best outcome. And so the goal really is to preserve psychological safety in order to keep task conflict alive, but minimize relationship conflict. So a great example of this is when Molly and I were writing the book together, um, Molly is much better at filling up a page. And I think I prefer to edit. And so sometimes that meant that Molly would want to send something out when I thought it wasn't ready to send out yet, but she would get frustrated with me for maybe moving a little too slowly or obsessing over syntax. And that was task conflict because it actually ended up, I moved a little faster and then she, you know, we sent out something that wasn't quite so half-baked. And so we both really helped each other there. Uh, And the way that we avoided it from turning into personality-driven conflict was to be open and listen to each other's opinions without turning it into a personal attack. So I could have, you know, at any point said, oh, you always do this. You always just send me like a wall of text. You always pressure me to send things out when I don't feel ready. I can't believe you do this. And that's not a constructive way of phrasing the problem. And so instead, we would always say, you know, I feel this and just really try and explain what was going on and always make it about the project and not make it an attack on the other person, not make it seem like it's this consistent issue that is an issue with their personality. So much of personality conflict is just a desire to be validated and to be heard. And so I think the simplest thing you can do there is to listen to someone and not make assumptions about where they're coming from and always try and keep criticism about the work and not about the person. You talk about this idea of um, communication and you say that your feelings aren't facts. Effective communication depends on our ability to talk about emotions without getting emotional, 
We often react to one another based on assumptions we never bother to look at more carefully. Why do we mix up feelings and facts? Because it seems that as human beings, it's very easy to do that and to turn fiction into reality. Yeah. Um, when you feel something, it can often be so strong that you believe it must be based on a truth because it just takes over your whole body. Um, and I think when, when there's a feeling or a sensation that powerful, it's hard to step back and say, okay, but what are the assumptions underlying this feeling? So every time you have an emotion based on a conflict or based on something someone else says, you're basing it only on the words that they've said or the actions. And specifically when it comes to words, um, which is what we mostly focus on in communication, one of my favorite quotes is from the psychologist Steven Pinker. And he says, words themselves are not the ultimate point of communication. Words are a window into a world. And so you're only getting a sliver of the real meaning. And so the really important thing to do when you feel yourself getting heated uh, in an argument or just about something someone said, or even more common about something someone emailed you, which is it's so easy to misunderstand or misconstrue meaning when it's written, is to step back and look at the situation, really think through the assumptions you're making, calm down. And then once you've calmed down, address your emotions with that person without getting emotional about them. And an effective way to do this is to say, when you X, I feel why. So I might say, when you send emails that are extremely short and curt, it makes me feel like you're upset with me and like I'm bothering you. And that does not create a victim or a perpetrator. That just, it's also hard for the other person to poke holes in your feelings. Like a feeling is valid often. It's definitely something that you're experiencing. It might not be based on valid assumptions. But again, it's this idea of creating space for the other person to share their, their perspective. And it's much easier for them to do that if you only state your side and then leave space open um, to hear them out. Mm. So I know that you also talked about the roles of race and gender uh, in this chapter, in particular in communication. And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that. Yeah. So one of the main issues uh, that women and men face when they're in conversation or communicating is that men have been socialized to be much more outgoing, much more aggressive, often uh, in a conflict. Um, and so what happens there is that sometimes leaders or managers will attribute more ideas to men than to women because they feel that men are speaking up more and speaking more in general. And so one great strategy there is for women to amplify each other. And this is when, let's say I'm in a meeting with Molly and I'll say an idea. And then Molly will chime in immediately afterwards and say, Liz, that's a great idea. And she'll restate the idea and then say like, Liz, I'm so glad you contributed that. And so it's really flagging, you know, a woman said this, um, and this was really effective uh, under the Obama administration. Female staffers felt that they weren't being heard in meetings. And so they used this amplification strategy and it was extremely effective. Obama realized that women weren't being called on as much or, or there wasn't space enough for them to speak up. And so he then made it a point to not only invite more women to meetings, but to make sure that they had room and felt comfortable to contribute ideas. And then for race, I think one of the big issues in race is that it can be uncomfortable to address race. Um, and, and this often unfortunately creates an environment in which people don't feel like they can bring their full selves to work, or it may create an environment in which certain people are not getting the feedback that they need to receive to be promoted. And so this is a story from a friend and she is a black female engineer. And she realized during code review, which is when engineers sit next to each other and kind of give each other feedback on lines of code, that she was not getting as much specific feedback as her white male um, co-workers. And so what would happen is like two white males engineers would sit down and they would rip each other's code to shreds. But in that process, they were getting really important tips and they were able to improve. And someone would sit down with her and they would, I think just for fear of, of being seen as racist um, or just generally being uncomfortable in that situation, they would just tell her, you know, everything you're doing is great. Maybe there's a slight tweak you could do on line 71, but generally it's great. And so she sat down and had like a conversation with them and said, here's what's happening. And she wasn't, you know, she just presented the facts. She was very nice about it. 
And she said, I want you to trust in my abilities. I want feedback. I need feedback if I want to be promoted and if I want to stay at this company. And then that did lead to behavior change and they started to feel more comfortable around her. Um, So I think two things out of that. One is just assume good intentions, um, have open conversations. um, Also really think through how your behavior might be perceived or what you might be doing that might make someone might, you know, prevent you from giving someone the feedback they need. And then the second is also, I think, and this applies to not only issues um, around race and gender, but just have like really structures and processes in place that encourage not only equitable discussion, but equitable feedback. Mm-hmm. So that takes us into these two final sections, which is emotional culture cascades from you in leadership. Yes. So emotional culture cascades from you speaks to this idea that an emotional culture within an organization is formed by a ton of really seemingly small gestures and behaviors. And so those we call micro actions. The term was coined by Keith Yamashita, who's a he founded SY Partners, which is like a cultural design firm. And I love this concept because it really does empower every employee to have an impact on their organization's emotional culture. And this ties back to psychological safety. There are things that whoever's listening to this, you can do now, you know, as, as you enter the workplace or in your next meeting. And so some of those to create a healthy emotional culture, some of those small things you can do are um, the, 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 my favorite, which seems obvious, but people mess this up all the time. is just learn to pronounce and spell names correctly. Um, I'm Elizabeth with an S it's crazy. How many times when I email someone and my name is right there, they'll still misspell it. And it's not a big deal. I don't hold it against them, but it is like, there's a small signal contained in the correct spelling of a name that makes a big difference. Another big issue, if you don't know how to pronounce someone's name is that you don't call on them. You don't address them by name. And then that starts to create this weird environment where they don't feel you know, like you're giving them the full attention that you might be giving to someone where you're always like, hey, John, thank you, John. Great job, John. Um, another small thing is when someone enters the meeting or comes into a conversation, stop the conversation for a moment and catch them up on what's happening. Um, I think that's it's so awkward to come in and feel like you're not, you don't know what's going on. And just to have someone invite you in is a, is a great great thing to do. Um, and then one other, th- one other thing that I love that they do at IDEO for creating a healthy and, um, a culture in which people just feel part of the organization is, so some of the most anxiety inducing situations are inflection points and those are or transition moments. So when you're starting in a new job, when you just got promoted, when you joined a new team, I think that's all times when imposter syndrome can crop up. And when you start to doubt, like, can I actually do this? And so the emotional arc, and this was definitely true for me, was I would get a job offer and I would just be euphoric. And I would think that I'm amazing. Of course, they offered me the job. And then within half an hour, I would just immediately start questioning my ability to do the job. And by the time my start date came around, I was so anxious about being in a new space and making friends and will they like me, um, that all of that excitement for the job had kind of dissolved. And so to keep that going at IDEO, they have everyone who interviewed the candidate or the new hire write on a post-it note three things. So the first thing they write is what really impressed them during the interview. The second thing they write is the skills that the new hire is bringing that they're excited for them to bring to the organization. And the third thing is something that they want to learn about the new hire. And then when the new hire comes on their first day, instead of just like an enormous binder full of legalese, you know, talking about 401ks and health insurance, there are all these post-it notes on the desk that really confirm and validate the new hire that also explicitly say, hey, here's what we want you to speak up on. Here's the expertise that we're excited for you to share with us. And then also have these little conversation starters for lunches or when you run into each other in the hall, like, I want to know what your favorite movie is. I want to know what activities you do on the weekend, that kind of thing. Um, So these are all like just small tweaks people can make to create emotional cultures in which employees feel a greater sense of well-being. And then one final thing I'll say on that is there's just a host of literature uh, and research that paints a financial case for creating a healthy emotional culture. Um, People stay at the company longer. 
They are more productive, I think most likely because they're happier. Um, teams do better. They come up with more innovative ideas. There's a lot of benefits that come from creating a place in which people feel like they belong. So I think that takes us into this uh, final piece, which is leadership. Yeah. And uh, what have you guys found uh, about leadership? I mean, I think this is what struck me most in the leadership section is that you said show vulnerability when assessing a difficult situation, but present a clear path forward. Yes. So I think a common misconception when people hear the term emotion at work or embracing emotion at work at work is that it's an invitation to become a feelings fire hose. And that is not conducive to creating an effective work environment, especially if you're a leader. So there's actually research that shows that as a leader, too much disclosure or too much vulnerability can undermine people's perception of your ability to lead. And so leaders should be authentic and they should be vulnerable, but also keeping in mind that you don't want to destabilize a work environment. So a specific example of that is, say that you work at a startup, um, you're running out of money, things are, you know, yeah, you're running out of money, there is a 80% chance you're going to close a new round soon, but it hasn't happened yet. Most likely your employees are going to be, tell, be able to tell that you're stressed. There's also research that shows how good we are picking up what someone is feeling, even if they're not verbalizing it. So you don't want to be an unemotional robot. But so you say something like, look, uh, it's a hard time. Here's the situation. Um, that said, there is a plan to close more funding. Here's what I'm doing to make that plan happen. Here's what I need from you to make that plan happen. And I really believe that we can come together and, and do this. And so that's very different than just coming into a meeting and saying, look, I'm going to be vulnerable with you. I'm terrified. I haven't been sleeping. This is just a really stressful time and stopping there because your employees will panic. Um, and so it's fine to, again, as you said, the formula that we have is like, be selectively vulnerable, talk about your emotions, address them, but then always provide a path forward and paint like the most positive, but realistic picture possible. So it, uh, that uh, intrigued me in particular, because uh, a few weeks ago, I, I published a piece on Medium that that you know, was, was fairly vulnerable. I mean, I shared a lot of things that I found difficult about this last year. Mm -hmm. And I got a series of text messages from my sister who actually asked me to reconsider the kinds of things I had been writing. She said, you need to realize that people have certain expectations of you and that people who could hire you to speak are probably reading the things that you are writing. So you really need to, to be mindful of that. And, and I guess the, what was interesting is, is particularly when you have a, a creative career or you're not working in, in the context of a company, where you find that line between vulnerability and train wreck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. Because yeah, go ahead. creative resonant is vulnerable, but there is a fine line. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm thinking on kind of an example from my own life. I... I guess how I try and, and find the balance is it's still this element of like painting the most positive but realistic picture. And that doesn't mean that you have to be peppy in everything. I think it's fine. And especially as a creative, it's actually very comforting. It's been very comforting for me to read when other creatives are really struggling, but it's even better when I read, here's the things that you've struggled with and here are some things you're trying or here's kind of what helped you come out of the pit. Um, and then also it just provides one, it's useful. There's a lot of, I've definitely implemented tips when I've kind of been in the, the inevitable creative dumps. And then the other is um, it's, it's inspiring. And I, I think part of the creative process is being down in the dumps, but, but then coming out of it and creating something and, and that entire process feeds into art. And so I think when you're, talking to people about it, um, especially in somewhat of a professional context, it's, you know, even beyond what's best for you and your career, it's also the most useful and for other people to also walk through ways that you try to combat those, the, the, the creative blues. Mm. Well, 
Wow. Uh, well, I think that makes a really fitting end to a very, very insightful conversation. So I want to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? When they've taken something that everyone has seen a million times before, but present it in a very surprising way. Um, I think to make the mundane new is makes you unmistakable. Hmm. Wow. Awesome. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your insights with our, our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you are up to? Yeah, so people can find out more about me and then my co-author Molly at our site, Liz and Molly. And speaking of correct name spellings, so it's L-I-Z and M-O-L-L-I-E. So Molly also has a semi-unconventional spelling of Molly. Um, same Liz and Molly on Instagram and Twitter. And then the book comes out on January 22nd. It's called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. And that's wherever you order books. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.